0: i got a couple of items to read for On This Day in Church church History. So today is, yep, the 12th, uh, 1660. John Bunyan is arrested for unlicensed preaching and sentenced to prison. While incarcerated, he penned Pilgrim's Progress and Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. um, The greatest Puritan spiritual autobiography, according to this guy. Also, on November 12, 1704, 42 year old Matthew Henry writes in his journal that he means to prepare a commentary on the entire scripture. A couple of days later, he adds, "I said quote, "I said about it that I may endeavor something and spend my time to some good purpose, and let the Lord make what he has what he used <clears throat> pleases of me. He will complete." Most of the project before his death in 1741, friends will put it into final form and publish it. So Matthew Henry's commentary is still widely used today and considered one of the best uh, single commentaries out there. Also, yesterday in history, November 11th, the Pilgrims landed Cape Cod and signed the Mayflower Compact. So I, am, I was kind of talking about those guys last week. And we'll talk a little bit about why Bunyan was arrested today. Um, Last week I had finished off with Edwards and Whitfield and a little bit of the Great Awakening, so I'll continue on that theme with John Wesley. And then we will take a step back in time um, to address um, an issue that Wesley and Whitfield had, and then we'll go through basically um, the 17th century in England. And we'll see how far we get today. So, before we begin, would someone like to help us up in prayer, please?
1: Father, lift up the time uh, in our prayers with you as part of our worship time. Thank you for Jim who's uh, organized these thoughts. And just pray that they'll be a blessing to us as we uh, look into the history of her church. pray this in Jesus' name.
0: Amen. Thank you. All right, so today we'll take a look at uh, Wesley a little bit. Um, I'm not going to go into his actual conversion story, because I'm sure most people know it, and it's uh, pretty interesting, but I will emphasize this morning of his impact on the church and his role as a church administrator. Um, So he himself, his brother Charles, who is the great hymn writer, and George Whitfield would come to start what is known as Methodism. Wesley was born on June 28, 1703 in England. Um, He studied at Oxford, receiving an MA, and was ordained as a priest, and he taught theology at Oxford. His younger brother Charles also studied at Oxford, and with uh, those two and two fellow students, they formed a small club for the purpose of study and the pursuit of a devout Christian life. They started this club called the Holy Club, and John Wesley was its leader. The group met daily from six until nine for prayer, psalms, and the reading of the Greek New Testament. They prayed every waking hour for several minutes each day for a special uh, virtue. So Methodism is, gets its term from its its practices, and so um, this club they would they would pray and and encourage each other in having uh, virtuous Christian practices. They fasted on Wednesdays and Fridays until 3 o'clock, as was commonly observed in the ancient church. In 1730, the group began the practice of visiting prisoners in jail. They preached, educated, and relieved jailed debtors whenever possible and cared for the sick. Um, Oxford at this time had a very low spirituality, according to Wesley. Um, And so uh, there was a negative reaction to this group and what they were were doing. They were considered to be religious fanatics. University students called called them the Holy Club, which started as a title derision, but they uh, took it upon themselves. They met in a little white building in Oxford, and I have seen it, and there's a little plaque. Uh, It's just a very tiny, small building where they would gather and and hold this club. Um, And at this time... England, you know, still the Church of England, this is going to come after what I talk about in a few minutes, Um, but preachers had to preach in established pulpits. Um, Open air preaching, as we kind of hear about today and what we know from Whitfield, was not encouraged and was frowned upon, Um, and because of these practices, these guys were not given pulpits to preach in, and so Whitfield said, okay, fine, whatever, I'm just going to go preach to crowds anyways, and so he started doing that. Um... Wesley was not a fan of this at first, but he saw its great success and the people responding to Whitfield's message. Um, From then on, he started to take on opportunities for himself to preach wherever an assembly could be brought together. Wesley continued for 50 years, entering churches when he was invited and taking a stand in the fields and halls, cottages, and chapels when the churches would not receive him. Um, A funny aside, when I did go to Oxford, we went to a church where Wesley uh, preached regularly, and the pulpit is raised up above the ground so that people would look up and see the minister, and Wesley had to walk up these small set of spiral stairs, but apparently he was actually a little bit short, and so all people could see was just the top of his head when he was (laughs) preaching. Uh, Wesley's preaching began to create societies in different areas, and Wesley began organizing all of them into structures. He was a very, very capable church uh, administrator. One of the things he did was to have his traveling preachers travel in what are called circuits, or prescribed routes of preaching, where a minister would preach in the open air at one location, hop on his horse and then ride on to the next, preach there, hop on his horse and ride on to the next. So the minister wouldn't stay. He would preach and move on. This method of circuit preaching would give rise to um, circuit riders here in America, which I will talk about in a few minutes. Wesley traveled generally on horseback, preaching two or three times each day. Here are a couple of interesting stats. Over his life, he rode 250,000 miles gave away 30,000 pounds, and preached more than 40,000 sermons. He formed societies, opened chapels, examined and commissioned preachers, administered aid charities prescribed for the sick, superintended schools and orphanages, and received at least 20,000 pounds for his publications, but used little of it for himself. He also wrote against slavery and was friends with John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and friends with William Wilberforce the British politician who almost single-handedly ended the British slave trade. Wesley also had a major impact on Christianity in America. When the American Revolution began, Anglican churches were disbanded in the colonies or they separated from the Anglican church. This is where we get the American Episcopal domination from. Because Because of this, many who were Anglican had no church to go to and were therefore not being preached to or ministered. So Wesley sent over some ministers to America to reach these people. One minister would eventually become the head of the new American Methodist church was Francis Asbury. Asbury was a Methodist circuit rider. And so, talk about circuit riders. So, circuit riders, um, they were sent to America. They would travel in a circuit, which I would already described. They generally only stayed for uh, in one location for a, a day or two. Basically, their job was to preach, maybe administer the sacraments, and then move on. They traveled with very few possessions, carrying only what could fit in their saddlebags. They had to be young, in good health, and single. They had to fight off robbers, bandits, Indians, storms, and the cold. Many did not live long. Most never made it into age 30, and most never preached longer than a few years. So uh, a pretty grueling day-to-day lifestyle for these gentlemen. They basically lived off their horse. They would preach minister to people when they could, and then they would move on. Many circuits were so large it would take five or six weeks to cover them. Some circuits would just be in one state. Others would cover multiple states. One Methodist circuit rider, Asbury, rode on horseback for 270,000 miles to preach the gospel. So sometimes our cars don't even last that long.
1: Tim, I have a question. Yeah. How organized were the circuits? Like, would other circuit riders know like did they prescribed territories they had
0: prescribed territories in their not so the methodists so this is after the American Revolution yeah. so the methodists had their circuits presbyterians would do some a little bit too and and the baptists and I don't know if there was infighting in that sense um, but they all had prescribed routes that they would they would take um, so because of the circuit riders methodism in um the late 18th, early 19th uh, century became the largest Protestant denomination in America at this time. Um, okay, so uh, Wesley's major contribution to um, American history, church history, is his organization of the Methodist Church, his um, influence in spreading uh, his methods through the circuit riders who had reached a bunch of people on the frontier and Um, At times, this is the only minister that they would see for quite a while. The guy would ride up on his horse. Some of these guys, um, they would sleep outside, but uh, a couple of times you do see accounts of people who would give up their homes for the night for the minister. Um, But for the most part, it was a pretty grueling uh, life. They literally lived off their horse. Um, There are also accounts where some guys were so tough that um, bandits they would uh, they would know of certain preachers and they would avoid them because these guys really had to defend themselves and there's one guy called Peter Cartwright who's he's a little bit later um, he met Joseph Smith and basically told Joseph Smith, the you know founder of Mormonism, that he was a heretic and he's going to burn in hell if he doesn't repent and um, after he met joseph Smith to to um, I think it was two wagons of bandits tried to take down this guy, and he manhandled them both and um, went off with two extra wagons for himself. (laughs) So some of these guys had a pretty brutal life. Again, most of them did not live very long, and it was about a two- or um, three-year way of life that most could handle because it was very brutal. So Dennis and Camper, you know, they're here at one building. One of the downsides about this is you don't get a familiar minister. They don't get to really know you very well. And one of the upsides is that a lot of these people lived in frontiers and they were so spread out that if someone didn't come to them, they would not have had a minister until eventually the church would you know, move out into the frontier. So that's Circuit Riders, really um, not started by Wesley, but really heavily impacted by him in America. All right, so Wesley and, and uh, Whitfield. Um, they both come out of the, the Methodist tradition. They basically started, it. But they had a, a disagreement over what is called Arminianism. <clears throat> Wesley had stressed Arminianism. He was the only prominent leader of the Great Awakening who did. So Edwards and Whitfield were not for Arminianism. And if you don't know what that is, I'm about to explain it. Wesley opposed Calvin's doctrine of predestination. He thought the belief made God seem arbitrary, impartial to certain people, and neglectful of others. Wesley insisted that God will the salvation of all and that people had enough freedom of will to choose or refuse divine grace. This conviction brought his friendship with Whitfield close to the breaking point. Um, however, they decided to... Um, dis- they- they disagreed on this doctrine, but they still decided to work together for the benefit of souls. And Wesley writes this at Whitfield's funeral in 1770. Wesley says of Whitfield, We had a most generous and tender friendship. Um, so they disagreed on doctrine, but they were still friends and they worked together for the cause of Christ. So, what is it that they disagreed about? What is Arminianism? So we need to take a step back a century, the early 1600s, and, and go back. In the early 1600s, there was a Dutch Reformed theologian named Jacob Arminius, and he had supporters known as the Remonstrants. There were, they were adherents in Protestant circles, um, Arminianism is held to, to this day, by some Methodists, some Baptists, and the Pentecostals. The Arminianism can say to be stood in contrast to Calvin. I know you're chomping at the bit. <clears throat> Just hold on. Just hold on. So, what, what is it? It comes out of a series of five articles written in 1610, the Remonstrance, um, they were reacting against Calvin's doctrine of predestination. They were reacting of the the, the Reformed theology coming out of Geneva, and they, they for them they saw some problems with it. And they wrote five articles addressing the problems they had with uh, the doctrine of, of predestination. So, article one, they said condi- people had uh, election was conditional. God elects to salvation those He knows beforehand and will have faith in Him. So essentially they say God picks people to salvation by looking down the corridor of time and how they will respond to Him. Article 2, they had unlimited atonement that Christ died for all, but salvation is limited to only those who believe in Christ. Article 3, total depravity. Man is totally depraved, Uh, not as bad as we can be, but all of our being is corrupted by sin. And so, therefore, man is unable to do the will of God and cannot save himself. But their caveat is, unless free will being able by the prevenient grace of God. All that word means is grace that comes before. And I'll explain that in a minute. Article 4. Resistible grace. It asserts that once God's prevenient grace has enabled a man to believe Man can resist God's grace by exercising his free will. In Article 5, conditional preservation of the saints, this article argues that perseverance of the saints may be conditional upon the believer remaining in Christ, or in other words, true believers could truly fall away from the faith. So, this is what the remonstrants are saying in reaction to Calvin's, to Geneva, to Reformed theology. So, how do Reformed churches respond? Well, they respond to each of the remonstrance points um, through five heads. They address all five points. So let me go through their five points, and then I will take questions. So their response comes at the canon of Dort. The first head of doctrine concerned divine election and reprobation. The Synod ruled that by virtue of Adam's fall, we are all so profoundly sinful, we deserve only condemnation. And are, we are, are able to do nothing to prepare for grace or even to cooperate it. And so God elects those who will save based upon nothing in ourselves. Okay? Where the remonstrance said election is conditional based upon what God sees and who responds. So, remonstrance, conditional. Reformed theology, unconditional election. Number two. The second head of doctrine teaches that Christ's death did not simply make salvation available for those who will, but rather our Savior actually secured the salvation of all of his people. So the remonstrance said that Christ died for all, but only those who um, receive Christ are saved. Reformed theology says, no, Christ only died for the elect. He did not die for all of mankind in a salvific, a salvific sense. So Reformed theology says the atonement was not limited in its power, but limited in its scope, its purpose. Who did Christ die for? The third and fourth were heads of doctrine were combined together. Um, it says, though we are created good and upright, we freely choose sin and with it death. We are so corrupt by nature that we are incapable of life or free choice apart from the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. The natural knowledge and law of God only condemns us only God, the Spirit, through the Word and ministry of reconciliation, raises His elect to right to life. And so, they're saying that man is totally uh, depraved; the entirety of human humanity is depraved and cannot choose to do the will of God. The Remonstrants would say the same thing. The difference is, Reformed say that once, once God, if you are if you are elect, when God. Um, sends his grace to you, you cannot fully and finally resist it. Those who are elect will be saved. Those who God internally calls will be saved. The remonstrance said, no, not necessarily. The fifth head defined as the perseverance of the saints. Left to ourselves, we would fall away, but grace mercifully confirms and powerfully preserves us even to the end. And so the Reformed theology says, in short, once saved, always saved. That's a bit of a misnomer, but essentially those who are true believers cannot truly fall away. Where the remonstrants say, um, your perseverance is conditional upon yourself. That true believers could truly fall away. You could lose your salvation. Those are the five points. Now, commonly we understand the Canons of Dort, the five points as today is TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. That's not where TULIP comes from because the articles are actually not in this order. Um, But TULIP stands for total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So there's a battle going on in what does the atonement do for us? What does election mean? Um, That's pretty much the battle going on between these two camps in the early 17th century, 1600s alright alright ask your questions but we do have limited time so Dan
1: you don't want to do the political context of this?
0: No I don't have time for that
1: alright I'll let it go alright <laughs> I'll have a comment I've seen a lot of acrimony between Calvinists and Armenians a lot and um, I don't think it's very becoming for Christians I mean, these are very important things, For I've seen Christians go at each other tooth and nail over these issues. We're both, they're actually brothers and sisters in the Lord. so I
0: need to put it in context. I see verses supporting both sides, and my feeling is that, you know, if I can't get my brain around something, that's more of
1: an indication of my limitations rather than what God is. That was a big deal at the time of this, too. The remonstrants were banished from Holland uh, or imprisoned.
0: Yep. That's kind of why I started with uh, Wesley and Whitfield's relationship first. They disagreed on this doctrine pretty heavily, but they still remained friends and still worked together for the cause of the gospel. So I wanted to start with that. Um, Josh?
1: What the, the people remonstrants, what, what did they... What do they appeal to as their, like, like, as their, like, authority as far as trying to, like, form their doctrines?
0: Well, they use this, they use the scripture, uh, Arminianus, he also said he, until his death, affirmed the Belgic Confession, which is what the Dutch used, and um, when, the Dutch also said that you are not affirming completely the Belgic Confession. And like Shea had said, you could look, I think, on the surface at the surface level, and come to this conclusion or that or that conclusion. Um, you can get into some ideological differences of what is free will, what exactly does total depravity mean. Um, they're also debating on what exactly does the limited aton- or does the atonement do. So you've got all these things coming together. Um, and Arminius he was he was teaching this, and some of his students. It always starts with students for some reason.
1: <coughs>
0: they started spreading some of his ideas, and there's there's a lot of debate on how much of this Arminius held to versus the Remonstrants, who are Arminius's followers. So there is some debate on the, about that. Um, but like Dan said, they weren't treated very well by the the Dutch Reformed, um, and In their defense, in one sense, here's why. Here are some dangers of Arminian theology. If God's favor is conditioned upon anything in us, then we are lost because we are dead in sin. Meaning that because we are dead in sin, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Number two, if the gospel is reconfigured to include our obedience, it is no longer the gospel. The gospel message is that Christ has died for your sins. Christ does all the work. It's not that we do any work to merit our salvation. And if atonement is merely hypothetical, by that meaning that if Christ died for all, but people are able to resist grace, then the atonement, it doesn't actually save anyone. Because you can technically, um, everyone could technically resist. And Christ didn't save anyone. So it makes the atonement hypothetical. And if the elect can fall away, then grace is no longer truly grace. God is not really persevering, and your salvation is ultimately conditioned upon yourself. Now, that is reformed theology's position by Dan's size. I know there's disagreement about that. Do you have any?
1: I can make some pretty profound counter-arguments against this. Arminians would tell you that the high view of God's sovereignty makes God, in a way, the author of sin that is potentially an implication of reformed theology. No one on the reformed side will accept this, but depending on how you do it, what is it, Piper, Sproul, a lot of reformed theologians will say that, well, God is not the author of sin, he renders it certain by his will. So there's some pretty ugly splitting of hairs. You get issues of the order of salvation. The Bible will consistently tell you that faith is the preceding thing. It always orders faith first. From the Reformed perspective, faith follows. You get regeneration before faith because you have to be made alive, which is not the biblical ordering. They tend to take a very low view of all the all passages in Scripture, which Tim will tell you that's contextual, but I can basically make the same argument for all the ones that. <laughs> go on the other side. So
0: so Dan and I have plenty of discussions about this, <laughs> but like Whitfield and Wesley, we are still still friends. And I actually appreciate, um, I appreciate his bantering, because it actually strengthens my understanding of my own position, and I think for him too. Um, so he and I are an example of this. We strongly disagree on, on Tulip, um, but we are still brothers. Right? So um, the canons of Dort. So those are those five responses by reform, the Reformed theologian, Theologians are part of the three forms of unity, which contain the Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort, and the Heidelberg Catechism. <clears throat> the three forms of unity are used primarily by the Dutch Reformed churches, and then the Westminster Confession are used mostly by the English Presbyterian churches. I got this really cool book. <laughs> That synthesizes all of the uh, catechisms of the foreign faith. Go ahead and pass it around. All right. Okay, so that is the controversy that almost split Whitfield and Wesley, grounded in the early 17th century. So now we're going to finish out through the rest of the 17th century um, addressing uh, nonconformists in England and basically um, the march of religious freedom in England. All right, so I've got a timeline here. We're just going to quickly go through it. Mostly it's for the context of what we're going to discuss. Um, <clears throat> but you could just see and read it. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to talk about thir- 30 Years' War very briefly. 1618 to 1648. Conflict began primarily as a religious struggle with political overtones and ended as a political power struggle with religious overtones. Basically, without getting into all the nuances, there was a a Catholic League of Princes and then a German League of Princes who started fighting each other. Um, Basically, what what I want you to get out of this is at the end of the war, terms of the peace were called the Peace of Westphalia in 1648. So the previous century, there there was some fighting, and there was something called the Peace of Augsburg, which basically said the princes of kingdoms could determine if their land wanted to be Protestant or Catholic, and anyone living under, in that land would be Catholic or Protestant. Westphalia now said that Protestants and Catholics could actually live together in the same land. Um, so this was passed. Um, the Pope protested. Protestants obviously ignored the Pope, but so did the Catholics. And so... The Pope's really uh, temporal influence and power has significantly declined. After more than a thousand years, the state was free to transact its business as though the Pope did not exist. Christianity's alliance with the civil power going back to Constantine was changing. Christians in the West can now live in nation states. And so that's what the, thir- the result of the Thirty Years' War ends up, the peace of Westphalia. So, 30 Years War, 1620, Pilgrim's Land in America, 1625, Charles I becomes king, he'll become important in a few minutes, and Oliver Cromwell will also be important in England, John Bunyan is born, and then we get all the way to 1643, Parliament calls Assembly of Puritan leaders, produce the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechisms, and the public directory for worship. So... I will actually give the political background to the Westminster Confession.
1: <laughs>
0: All right, in 1643, the English Parliament called upon learned godly and judicious divines to meet at Westminster Assembly in order to provide, provide advice on issues of worship, doctrine, government, and discipline of the Church of England. Their meetings over a period of five years produced the Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter Catechisms. Here is a picture of the Westminster Assembly. All right, the purpose of the Westminster Assembly was to provide official documents for the Reformation of the Church of England. So, a little bit of background: Um, the English Civil War um, was going on in 1642. So, Charles I. He was the king during the English Civil War. The English Parliament raised armies in alliance with the Covenanters. who were the de facto government of Scotland. So you have English Parliament making alliances with Scotland against King Charles I. Um, The purpose of the Westminster Assembly, which 121 Puritan clergymen participated was to provide official documents for the Reformation of the Church of England. The Church of Scotland had recently overthrown bishops imposed by the king and they reinstituted Presbyterianism. So the king would impose bishops, and the Scottish didn't like that, so they, they had the, what's called the Bishops' War. They won, they brought back in Presbyterianism, which basically says the people can elect their leaders. Um, <clears throat> okay, And so the Church of Scotland, they wanted to enter into alliance with the English Parliament. As a condition of entering in this alliance, the Scottish Parliament formed the Solemn League and Covenant with the English Parliament, which meant that the Church of England would abandon Episcopalianism and basically become Presbyterian. So they're making, they're making political allegiances here, um, and they're, they're, they are against King Charles. You guys see that? All right. The Confession and Catechisms were produced in order to secure the help of the Scots against the king. <clears throat> they produce catechisms and a confession which basically says we are Presbyterian, we are not Episcopalian. This is Parliament. Parliament tells a bunch of ministers to get together and create these documents for one, for one political purpose of aligning themselves with the Scots so they could get rid of King Charles. Okay, So you've got all these political things going on here. <clears throat> In 1646, The document was sent to the English Parliament to be ratified and submitted to the General Assembly of the Scottish Church. The Church of Scotland adopted the document without amendment in 1647. In England, the House of Commons returned the document to the Assembly with the requirements to compile a list of proof texts from the scriptures. In 1648, it was adopted by the English Parliament. The confession comes out of the English Civil War, where Cromwell becomes the leader. They depose King Charles. Cromwell becomes Lord Protector, King Charles is, is beheaded, uh, and Parliament basically is ruling, and then uh, for a time, England is a republic. And the Confession comes out of basically trying to get the Scottish help because the Scottish were not going to help someone who disagreed with them on matters of church government and church uh, theology. And so the political overtones of the Westminster Confession are really to um, get rid of a king. However, in 1660, the monarchy is restored and Episcopalianism uh, returns. The Westminster Confession itself, on the theological side, it discusses many, many things. The Scriptures, the Trinity, Predestination, Covenant Theology, Christ's Free Will, Salvation Law, Christian Liberty. You all can read it. There are 33 chapters that go through all this. So here's my little pocket confession. It also includes includes the shorter catechism. Here's my little pocket one that I read to my son, and we go through the catechisms together. There's also a larger catechism, and what some people seem to neglect, the Public Directory, the, uh, the Directory for the Public Worship of God, which basically uh, gives uh, guidelines on how uh, worship services are to be performed in the churches. And so for a time, this was England's standard of government and theology until 1660. And then it went back to the king. They got tired of parliament and wanted the king again. The confession is a doctrinal standard of the PCA, the OPC, and other, uh, some other Presbyterian denominations in America. By that, it means these are the doctrines that we subscribe to as a church, um, as church officers, we have to subscribe to these doctrines. There is room for what are called exceptions um, because um, the scripture is final authority. And so the confession is a written document by man and it, can, it is possible for it to err. And therefore, um, you don't have to hold to all of it, in, at least in our denomination. And presbyteries can determine if there are exceptions to the confession that you hold, with a caveat that they do not strike at the vitals of the system. Now, for example, you can't say, I do not hold to infant baptism and be an officer in the PCA because that is part of covenant theology, the vital system of the doctrine itself. But you could say, I think recreations on the Lord's Day are okay. That doesn't strike at the vitals of religion. And so the confession um, is our doctrinal standard, but again, Scripture is our final and highest authority, and so the confession is subservient to Scripture. Did you say that the regional presbyteries decide what exceptions? Presbyteries determine what are exceptions, yes. You'll see in there, actually, so... The confession was modified in 1789 for the American churches. The American churches modified it, which basically removed a clause in there that said the civil magistrate had the power to deal with church matters. Of course, that would not fly in America. It did fly in in 17th century England. All right, moving on on the timeline. Okay, so Charles is beheaded in 1649. Cromwell becomes Lord Protector. Parliament restores monarchy in 1660. And then we get to 1662, Act of Uniformity passed and 2000 clergy ejected from their parishes. This Act of Uniformity prescribed the form of public prayers, administration of sacraments and other rites of the established Church of England, according to the Book of Common Prayer in 1662. Adherence to this was required in order to hold any office in government or the church. The act also required the Book of Common Prayer to be truly and exactly translated into the British or Welsh tongue, and it also explicitly required Episcopalian ordination for all ministers, deacons, priests, and bishops. This all had to be reintroduced because the Puritans in in Parliament during the English Civil War rejected Episcopalianism, rejected that form of government, you know, bishops appointing. They They accepted Presbyterianism where they... Officers were elected from the people. Well, this had to be reestablished. And so people who still held to Presbyterian views of government, even Congregationalist views of government, um, they refused to submit to this, to take the oath, and were expelled from the Church of England, which became known as the Great Ejection of 1662. Um, this created the concept of non-conformity. So you had nonconformists in England who would not accept what um, what the Church of England was requiring of its ministers. So John Bunyan, who was a nonconformist, he was actually arrested before the Act was passed. But the guy uh, overseeing uh, his arrest would eventually come to write the Act of uh, Nonconformity. The religious freedom he and others enjoyed had now come to an end when the monarchy was restored. So you've got like. Forms of power going on and who could be doing what with how they viewed their faith. And so you got got basically Church of England, and then you've got Puritans, Presbyterianism, and now we're back to the Church of England, which affected those who are of the Presbyterian persuasion. So Bunyan, he was told to give up preaching because he would not conform. He wasn't technically allowed to preach. He would not, and for 12 years he languished in prison where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. His wife, Elizabeth, was left to bring up four stepchildren, one of which was blind, and she had to rely on the charity of her friends. But Bunyan said, Oh, I saw in this condition I was a man who was pulling down his house upon the head of his wife and children, yet I, th- I thought I must do it. I must do it. What do you guys think of Bunyan's decision to stay in prison because he couldn't preach versus... Taking care of his family. I'm not convinced it was the right choice. I don't know. Why?
1: Because I think you have a duty to your family.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, and I don't know, that wouldn't supersede your duty to God, but I'm not sure that you're preached it. Oh, no. I said that it, uh, it depends on the seriousness of the doctrines and the necessity of what he was doing.
0: Bunyan was kept in prison because, uh, he wasn't put in prison because of the Act of Uniformity, but he was kept in there because of it for 12 years. (laughs) In 1665, the Great Plague kills nearly 70,000 in London. Five Mile Act forbids nonconformists from coming within five miles of former parishes. Um, This would actually uh, prevent a lot of people from actually getting jobs. So they couldn't preach, and then now they couldn't get jobs because of where they used to live. That's where they would also possibly work. Uh, Sixty-seven. Milton's Paradise Lost is published, um, and then we move all the way down to 1685. Charles, Catholic brother James II, takes the throne, and persecution of nonconformists intensifies. Then, 1688, glorious revolution. William and Mary become king and queen of England. That is the same William and Mary named for our college here. So, some background. James II. He was Catholic. Um, but he actually initially had widespread support, even from um, Protestants. However, he lost that pretty quickly because he suspended parliaments of Scotland and England in 1685, and then he ruled by personal decree. Tyrant. (laughs) On 10th of June, 1688, a male heir was born, and this freaked out the Protestants because now you could have a Catholic dynasty because you now have a male heir. And um, James also prosecuted uh, some uh, ministers for libel, but they were acquitted. But during their uh, acquittal, um, there were um, widespread anti-Catholic riots. And so James's political authority and persuasion was now curtailed. And seven English politicians, soldiers, and religious leaders issued an invitation to William of Orange, who was actually James's nephew, asking him to intervene and protect the Protestant religion. So one of, the, um, I guess scholars say, one of the largest and riskiest military operations in Dutch military history, William landed 20,000 men on the 5th of November and advanced on London. Uh, James's army disintegrated, and he went into exile in France on the 23rd of December. and April 1689, Parliament made William and Mary joint monarchs of England. In- England and Ireland. And yes, that is the same women Mary that we have for our college. And then we get the glorious revolution of sixteen eighty eight when they actually become king. <clears throat> they protect Protestantism. And in sixteen eighty nine, Puritans regained freedom of worship through the Act of Toleration. This act allowed for freedom of worship to nonconformists, to Protestants, but not to Catholics. Nonconformists were allowed in their own places of worship and their own they were allowed to their own school teachers so long as they accepted certain oaths of allegiance and those oaths did not conflict with their beliefs to preach how they saw fit and run their churches how they saw fit. So essentially <clears throat> England went back and forth and over time religious freedom was opened up to more people, but not to Catholics. This would also affect what happened in America, which I don't have, I'll have to talk about next week, where now you could, you did not have to subscribe to the Church of England's form of government, uh, its ordinances, or its oaths. And you could preach, uh, and you could practice your beliefs how you saw fit, according to the scriptures. Now you could do this. In America, because now we have the colonies at this time, In America, you could also do this, but you had to get a license. Get a license to preach. And so, sixteen. this act of toleration now leads to basically um, Presbyterianism would start to come about in America, uh, which I don't have time to talk about. I ran out of time. Because of this act, because of William and Mary coming in and basically uh, establishing freedom of religion. And so, before women and Mary, you've got a power struggle of who's going to be in charge, who's going to allow what kind of worship, what kind of practices, and then 1689 comes and basically allows for most, most not all, not like we experience today, but more religious freedom. It took about 100 years to do. Right? And that would actually impact religious freedom in America, which we will address next week. Alright, so... Any quick questions? I'm out of time. Josh, you want to pray for us? Sure. you.
1: Lord, thank you for showing us how, as your church, you have preserved sound doctrine and brought your people together to worship you. Be with us now as we worship in second service and show us your face and your word. Amen.